Greetings, salutations, one and all. Welcome into Sports Talk Tuesday edition. I am Scott Beatty with the legend Lauren Tate, fresh off his first round of the Home Run Derby. <laughs> How many did you hit out? I hit 13. Hit 13 yeah, with, tied, with tied. a nine iron? <laughs> <laughs> Is my name Pujols? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just wonder if Pujols will ever hit another home run after that. <laughs> Boy, he was smacking him, wasn't he? He, uh, it was neat the to most see. frustrated man in America today is Schwarber, without any doubt. I mean, he had no idea that he was going to hit all those line drives. But you know that pitcher kept throwing him on the outside corner. <laughs> he was throwing him high and outside. And, and, you know, those were good home run pitches. I'm thinking about those guys that they get to pitch to them and – how much you'd have no idea who those guys are, but they make the whole thing. They make it. If they if you put it on the inside corner waist high every time, kaboom. <laughs> right? You don't want to be knee high, you don't want to be shoulder high. You want it right there. How'd and you like uh, it was close to three hours, that thing, right? I don't know. I watched I didn't pay attention. <laughs> I missed the whole first Pujols thing entirely. I, I saw you know, I, I watched the, the opening round. And you wouldn't believe what happened after the first guy got up and hit a bunch of home runs. The next guy got up and hit a bunch of home runs. And then the next guy, after a while, it's kind of like, okay, I get the idea here. What were all those people doing there watching that? What were they doing there? <laughs> the, a lot of there was a lot of players, the entourage. Oh, man, listen. The and the, and the winner get a million bucks, and the second place guy gets, what, 700000 or seven fifty? What was it? Uh, yeah. And it's all going to, uh, to charity. Rodriguez made as much money that day as he makes the whole year. Well, he may be getting in. I mean, that's that's salary wise. Yes, I'm not saying what else he's got. Well, now Juan Soto is uh, issuing his 440 million dollar offer from the Nationals. He wants to make more money than that. How much? The Cardinals are just out of that picture, aren't they? I, I mean, think they've so. been mentioned. I'm thinking there's no way the Cardinals are going to spend that kind of money. Tomorrow we'll talk with and give up. How, what would you have to give up to get him? All their fine pitching staff. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> You've got a few suggestions well, to yeah, share. Yeah, I'd give them the starting rotation. <laughs> Juan Soto can pitch himself. <laughs> no, there's plenty of pitchers who can throw as good as our starting rotation. Well, Matt's, I mean, what are you going to do? Hudson, come on. Flaherty, come on. Wainwright, he's only got one more year anyway. Yeah. Come on. Joe Pot from uh, Cardinals Radio will join us tomorrow, by the way, kind of a midseason, uh, the all-star break checkup on the Redbirds. You can ask him about the Soto thing. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see what uh, what's to, to come of that. All right, this hour we are pleased. I've uh, tried a few times, and to no avail, finally landed a national voice in college football, Phil Steele, who writes the College Football Preview magazine. You may need a magnifying glass I'm to read it. I'm still squinting from having <laughs> spent the morning reading his magazine. But it's good if you can. It's good, but it's got too many. You, know, you like the pictures? You want more pictures? Is that well, what you're saying? no, I just don't like all the abbreviations. I mean, it just wears you out. It's it is It is written in a shorthand that is unique really to is. him. It really is. Uh, and if you know all the abbreviations, that's fine. But I, you know, I hate LY to, is usually I last. I felt like year. I was reading a George Wilcox. I had to go back and look <laughs> up something every time I read a paragraph. Except George Will's words are thirty-six letters long, and yeah. you know these are two letters long. You don't know what they mean. Yeah. Uh, no, Phil Steele. This is twenty-eighth edition. Um, he does he does tout most accurate magazine, but shows you why he's got the data to prove it. Uh, that his projections. More data. He's got data, data, data. Yeah. He usually. Uh, has some uh, idea of how the football season will shape out uh, 
in each conference, and he spends time with every head coach that will let him. Yeah, 120 out of 131. That's pretty mm-hmm. good. Yep. But so, you know the problem with that? If you're going to talk to 120 coaches, that's going to be over several months probably. Yeah. And you're getting information from one of them back when they were just starting spring practice, and you're getting information from the other one when the summer's just beginning. And their teams change yeah. in that period. There are transfers, and he can't. Po- well, you can't possibly keep up with everything. You know. Yeah, he, it's it's. I know Bob Osmussen used to write for one of the magazines, and he would say after he had turned it in, why well, somebody would up and leave, or some we'd add somebody. You know, that always happens. So we're looking forward to talking to him, and I do encourage you to check out the magazine. Also, check in briefly with Brian Barnhart. He is uh, part of the Challenger League event tonight over at Eichelberger Field. encourage you to go to that. Next hour, Matt Stevens will sit in with me. Evan Kahn on vacation this week. Matt Stevens from Illini Guys will play some pitch and catch as well here on Sports Talk. Hey, how about the draft Today, yeah, how about the Illini? I, I, I thought and had hoped for a little bit higher position for Cole Kershipper. Nonetheless, he does hear his name called in the 12th round by the Miami Marlins, 352nd overall. And Justin Janis selected a few picks later by the Atlanta Braves. So two Illini drafted and apparently headed into their pro careers. Congratulations. Both left-handers. 12th round is really make good, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you got to make good. Yeah. It's, it's a different thing if you're a first or second, third rounder. Yeah, you get a longer leash up there. Oh, yeah. By the way, did you watch the Derek Jeter uh, documentary? I did not. I did not. I saw it, but it, I did not watch it. It, it held my interest. Uh-huh. It's sort of similar to The Last Dance in that, you know, it is very, it's about him, but there's also some of that reflecting on the history of what the Yankees are going through when Steinbrenner got suspended. And uh, I didn't realize how poorly Jeter played his first year in the minors. He was just terrible. Um, and all the things that precipitated him eventually getting called up in 95. And then uh, Steinbrenner came back and, they stopped the episode there pretty much. They didn't get into the start of the dynasty. Well, I should have watched it because I watched the sixth uh, episode of The Old Man with Jeff Bridges, and I am completely lost. <laughs> I'm just wandering in the forest. I, I mean, I don't know this what they're talking This is different how? I mean, I'm even having somebody explain it to me, and I still don't understand it. We got but George Will. one more to go. George Will, Phil Steele, and Jeff Bridges did all you, throwing you off. Did you, did you? Maybe you think it's me. <laughs> <laughs> Let's put that out to the listeners, shall we? <laughs> we'll just take a little poll. <laughs> if you got anything for us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line 3515357. Congratulations, Cole Kershipper, a really good Friday guy, and kind of transformed himself from a soft, soft tossing lefty. Maybe that's a little too harsh, but in his freshman year, you know, had good change of speed, but he really picked up his velo and worked through some things, and now he's going to be a pro baseball player. And Janice, you knew, is I just wish he was around one more year uh, because of that stinking COVID thing. But put together a batting championship last year mm-hmm. and maybe traded off a little bit in the average department this year for some more pop, mm-hmm. and that's just fine. Um, wondering if Jacob Campbell will get his name called before it's all said and done. Well, he really didn't. He had a slump at the end, didn't he? He, he did. did. 
He did, but he was doing well in but the he, Cape. You know, he started out in his career, he, he didn't hit, and then he hit, and then he quit hitting. Yeah, I mean, you I mean, knew it, from the Hitting is, you know, it's, it's hard to hit a round ball with a round bat. That's all there is mm-hmm. to it. You knew, I mean, when you're drafted out of high school, even in the 36th round, but you, that means you're already mm-hmm. kind of something. They're looking at you. Yeah, but, boy, I, you know, then there's the, this kid out of uh, Oswego, Noah Schultz, a left-hander who— Third round. Committed to Vanderbilt, and uh, he says, "No, I'm, no, I'll be a pro player." But there's all these. You know, it's just a different dynamic now. Are they going to go pro, uh, or are they going to stay in college? But I, in this day in a and nil, these top and in some of these baseball schools, I would think some of these top guys could be really enticed to go to school instead of go right into the minor leagues and maybe the pro ranks. Texture, by the way, Lauren says okay. this morning on ESPN that the Cardinals have the kind of prospects to get Soto. I understand that they do. Do they have five hundred million dollars worth of them? Well, I mean, they got. But but after you give up your prospects in the trade, then you have to pay him. It's what I'm saying. <laughs> That's what I'm, I'm not saying. They don't have the prospects, but and and really, it looks to me like the guys at Memphis are about the same level as the guys at St. Louis. They used to go back and forth. I mean, not at first and third base, of course. And, yeah. But they need a catcher desperate. I mean, Yachty's kind of, you know, this is going to be his final year, and he's just not hes not able to catch much of the time. And the, the catching situation is, is a disaster at the, hit, at the plate. Not every player, but for a lot of players, there's not a huge difference in ability between AAA and the major leagues. There is a difference in consistency. Mm-hmm. No, and, I, I think I think sustainability. The, big, the big difference is control. Uh, pitching is control. Yes, control. The and ability, hitting is consistency. The ability to throw the ball over the plate without throwing it down the middle. I mean that. Mm-hmm. And when you see guys like Hudson pitch, I mean he's just nibble, nibble, nibble. He's just afraid to throw it over. And y- you have to be able to get the ball over the plate with something on it. And I, I don't know if they've got enough. Uh, I don't know if uh, uh, I, I read where. Um, um, a couple of their minor leaguers are not quite at a major league level pitching-wise. I think Thompson is. I don't think Libertori is. When I was in the independent leagues, there would be occasional guys that had uh, cups of coffee in the big leagues mm-hmm. or maybe even a little bit more that would come play in the independent leagues at the end of their careers. And they would say it's, it's easier to hit in the big leagues. Why? Why would it be easier to hit in the big leagues? Because they have control. I know where the ball is going to be. <laughs> yeah, but it's not. It's going to be on the corner so much. And yeah. The, and the thing is, but the lower levels, it might be in my ear. <laughs> you know, well, that's because the pitcher might not know where it's going to go. That's right. what I'm saying. Yeah. That's why they say I know. The, the other point is, when you don't know where it's going, you might throw it down the middle. Mm-hmm. That's a bad pitch. Yeah. Hey, also got news today. Uh, according to John Rothstein, who seems to be the the guy with the scoop on all the schedules uh, from CBS Sports. Uh, for whatever reason, he gets he gets that uh, information tipped off. But we knew that Illinois will be a part of the uh, Roman main event in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. Baylor, Virginia, and UCLA are the other three teams in with them. And we now know that Illinois will play UCLA in the first game and then would play Baylor or Virginia, depending on who wins and loses. So Listen to this schedule from November 18th through December 6th. Did you see this? Go for it. Okay. You've got UCLA, then you got Virginia or Baylor, then you got Syracuse, then you got two Big Ten games, and then you got Texas. 
That's a lot of tough games in a row, and I don't know who the Big Ten games are because they haven't put out the schedule yet. Nope. But it's all power We teams. know who we'll play, but we know when we'll play them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all of a sudden it gets real. And that's why I, I've been saying, look, you, you, no matter how good Illinois is with its talent, it's going to take time to put it together. I would not be surprised if it's a team. I'm not going to be surprised if it's a team contending for a Big Ten title, especially with a bit of a softer schedule. However, I'm not going to be surprised if they're lower in the Big Ten and have a lower seed in the NCAA tournament, but find their way into the second weekend or beyond. Well, what's interesting is they're going to be sold out right here. Mm-hmm. This is an interesting team that he's putting together. I think people want to see it. I would, I too. don't know how many games they'll win, but I think a lot of these games will be – it's just going to be an incredible year for close games, as we talked about before the show – Close games throughout the football and basketball season. This throughout. One close game after another. Should be a lot of fun. Speaking of close games, that's a factor in Phil Steele's magazines. How many close wins or close losses did you have the year before? And how that uh, determines his forecast for you in the upcoming year. The man himself, Phil Steele. Lauren and I will talk to him when we come back. Sports Talk continues here on this Tuesday. It's Lauren Tate and me, Scott Beatty. For years now, one of the most authoritative college football preview magazines has been put together by Phil Steele. It has become a must-have publication for many who cover college football, whether on the air or in print, as well as dedicated fans. And he is here with us now. Phil Steele, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, a real pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Well, this has become, as I said, a, a valuable... You know what? I came late to the party a bit uh, on these things. And I, there's a lot of decent publications out here, but really nothing matches uh, what you do. So first off, congratulations. And I noted in your introduction that you almost uh, decided to hang this thing up, and now you're, you're continuing to go for the foreseeable future. Yeah, you know, it was it was pretty close uh, with COVID hitting, and you wondered, uh, are we playing a football season or not? And uh, you wondered what would happen, and you know, it was it was really tough in 2020 for everybody across the country, naturally. And at that point, I was like, you know, I, I don't know if uh, how, if it's worth it spending seven months of my life every year putting this thing together. But uh, you know, Barnes and Noble stepped up, uh, told us that they were their we were the best-selling magazine they had, and that, that sort of boosted it a little bit. And, you know, once we got through that 2020 year, we are set and good for the future. So, you know, we've had this a 28th year of the magazine. Hopefully we'll have another 28 in store. As we've gone through the COVID year and what was last year, does it feel like things have stabilized? <laughs> I know they're not stabilized in terms of conferences in the future, but in terms of <laughs> the metrics and the analytics and everything you put together, to rate teams, forecast, and all that for the season, does it feel like things are stable? Yes, uh, in in a couple of huge ways. Let me let me give you the first one. And the first one is, uh, I talked to about 120 of the 131 head coaches uh, this year, and last year when I talked to the head coaches, almost every single one of them told me, "Phil, this is the deepest we've ever been. This is the most experienced team we've ever had." And the reason was COVID. Uh, everybody had 17, 18, 19, 20 returning starters coming back. Coaches were telling me they could run three units in the spring where they normally scrape and put together two units. 
the only teams that were really affected by it were the, the big boys. The big boys all lost talent to the NFL. And if you go back and look at last year, it was a strange year. Clemson did not get into the ACC title game. Ohio State did not get in the Big Ten title game. Oklahoma did not get in the Big 12 title game. And even if you follow Alabama, yeah, I know Alabama made it to the championship game, but they lost to Texas A&M. They were outgained by Florida. Florida had a missed extra point at the end, which cost them. They were outplayed for, by LSU and should have lost Auburn. They needed a miracle comeback to come back and get that. So the powers weren't the powers last year. Michigan made the playoff. Cincinnati made the playoff. Michigan, by the way, had 17 returning starters. Uh, this year, it's back to normal. Everybody's lost players across the country. So I think we're going to see a return to the powers and a return to normalcy. And, you know, last year was tough metrics-wise because you had teams that have played zero games the previous year or four games the previous year, and you had teams that have played 12 the previous year. How do you mix that all together? So it was was very tough to predict last season. Phil Steele is with us from philsteele.com. Phil, this is Lauren. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in how you think – Texas and Oklahoma will play as members of a team when everybody a league where everybody else dislikes them, and USC and UCLA this year playing in a league where everybody dislikes them because they're leaving. How how does that affect the way you rate them, if at all? Uh, it didn't, but I tell you what, we saw last year Oklahoma and Texas were probably the two front runners heading into the season, and neither one made the Big Twelve title game, and Texas struggled and had a losing season. So. Uh, and you wonder a little bit about the, the commitment from the league behind them and, and things like that. But bottom line, when I did my ratings this year, I did them based on the, the talent they have. And naturally, I had, had, when I finished the magazine on June 8th, I didn't know USC and UCLA were in the future going to go to the Big Ten. Right. But that's an interesting uh, topic you bring up. And you got to think teams playing them come in with a little bit extra. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. They say a lot of extra things, and I know. Does, is the USC with a new coach and with the, uh, the talent that I hear they have, are they going to be back in the top half dozen? Do you think that's possible for them this year? No, that, that's a great question, Lauren. And let me, let me explain it to you, which really help you understand how I write the magazine every year. I do the magazine in a three-write-through process. The first write-through is a postseason write-through, and that's where I read every article that's written about the team the entire season, really get a good flavor for what happened at each position, you know, what the ups, the ebbs and flows of the year. And then I, I want to answer three questions. What kind of shape were they heading in last year? What happened? And what kind of shape are they heading in the next year? And at that point of the magazine writing process, Lauren, I had USC about middle of the pack in the mm-hmm. Pac-12 South. Mm-hmm. They were coming off a 4-8 and eight season. They only had 11 returning starters. The second right through is right at the start of spring where we uh, add in the freshmen, add in some transfers, and USC started to climb in my power rating. And then the third one is after I talked to the head coaches. And ironically, I talked to Coach Lincoln Riley the day they signed Jordan Addison. So now he brought his quarterback with him from Oklahoma and Caleb mm-hmm. Williams, who is a Heisman candidate. He brought over Mario Williams, you know, one of his top wide receivers from Oklahoma. He adds in the Blitnikoff winner in Jordan Addison, a 1,000-yard rusher at running back in Travis Dye. When I talked to Coach Riley, one of my questions was the offensive line, and he said that he really likes the top-end experience they have, and he didn't expect to inherit this much talent. 
I think the offensive line is going to be better than expected. And defensively, when you look at them, they brought in 13 transfers, including a guy like Shane Lee, who started 13 games for Alabama as a freshman and comes in as a starting middle linebacker this year. Now all of a sudden, USC really elevated. They went from 4-8 and eight all the way to my number one most improved team. I think they can get to double-digit wins this year, and they're probably the main contender for Utah in the Pac-12. Well, that's what the Big Ten's got coming in in a few years. Uh, Back to the Big Ten, uh, Ohio State opens the season against Notre Dame. Can either one of those teams, or is it likely that either one of those teams could make the four-team playoff if they lose that opener? Yeah, I think Ohio State would still have that opportunity uh, to get there, especially if they run the table, beat Michigan in the season final. And by the way, if you look at Michigan's schedule this year, uh, Michigan has three road games prior to facing Ohio State. Uh, they play Indiana, Rutgers, and Iowa. Iowa, the big test. We might see Michigan at that point be 11-0, and and that would make it a big marquee win at the end of the year. Ohio State winning the Big Ten. I think the Big Ten camp will make the playoffs. So, yes, Ohio State can overcome that. Notre Dame, I think it would be a little bit more difficult. They're an independent team. I think they pretty much have to come close to running the table. Let's say they have a close loss to Ohio State and then do run the table. They'll pick up some marquee wins. They'll pick up a home win against Clemson, a nice road win against USC. But I think it would be more difficult for Notre Dame to get there. Ohio State, I think, would still get there even if they lose the opener. Well, I was going to say Notre Dame's last game is against USC. That would be a very big influence if you reach that point and won all those other games, I would assume. Absolutely, yes. Phil Steele is with us. And, uh, Phil, since we are talking about the playoff for a moment, I I wanted to get your thoughts on this. Uh, You open up uh, early in the magazine with your uh, continued contention and opinion that a four-team playoff is the way to go and that it does indeed crown the best uh, football team of the year. Obviously, momentum and the chatter is all about a future 12-team playoff whenever that happens. What would you say to teams like Illinois and other fan bases of teams like Illinois who know, look, realistically, you're never going to be in a football playoff if it's a four-team playoff, at least not in the next five, ten years, for example? Yeah, that's interesting. The reason I like a four-team playoff uh, is three reasons. Uh, First of all, I like the Bulls. And I know there's a lot of bowl games, but I'm a college football fan. I could get excited about watching Akron and Eastern Michigan on a Tuesday night. So uh, I, I like I like the bowl games. I like the history of that. The, the second reason would be uh, I've watched the FCS playoffs, and some years it turns into a battle of attrition. The healthiest team wins a championship. Give an example. There was a three-year span at one point where the third-place team in a division in the Colonial Conference was playing in the national championship game because all the main contenders suffered injuries in the first couple of rounds, and all of a sudden they were the healthiest team out there, and they made it to the finals. I don't want to see the healthiest team make the finals. I want to see the uh, the best teams make the finals. And the other one would be the regular season. Right now the regular season means the most of any sport. I mean, if you lose one game, uh, you, chances are you might not make the playoff. So I love the fact that the regular season means everything in college football. So those are the three factors I have going for it. Now, if it is a fan base like Illinois with hopes of making the playoffs, you're right. 12 is probably the only way in the next five years or so uh, to make the playoffs. So that's an interesting point that you bring up, Scott. I, I would uh, I, I lobby for eight. That's been my thought for from the get-go, but nobody's listening to me. Would that would be palatable to you, though? Let's say 
at least as things are currently structured, five conference champions and three at large? More palatable than 16 or 24, where we eventually head, where it becomes a battle of attrition. Phil Steele is with us. You use a lot of metrics to forecast the upcoming year. I don't want to say predict. Uh, I don't think that's maybe a fair word for you. Um, one of those is close losses. Illinois fans know Illinois suffered too many of those last year. But usually that means good things for a team in the next year. So how much might Illinois be undervalued this year based on the number of close losses they had? Yeah, it's one of my favorite metrics that's in the magazine is the close wins, close losses. And and what's proven is through the years that, uh, you know, let's take a look at a team like Nebraska last year. Nebraska had seven net close losses. Now, a close loss is a game you lose by seven points or less the previous or during the season. And all of Nebraska's losses were basically close losses with the exception of one last year. That means if you just change one play in those seven games, the team could have been a much better team uh, at the end of the season. And that's what happened with Illinois. Illinois had four net close losses and just one close win. So you take the two together, and uh, Illinois had three net close losses. And what I've found through the years is that teams that Three net close losses for more of the previous year improved the record 76% of the time. So that's three out of four teams that enter into that three net close loss category improved their record. And if that's the case, then things look pretty good for Illinois for the upcoming year coming off a of 5-7 and seven season. And I know it's not the only factor you look at, but if it's 5-7, and seven, that means decent chance at six or more wins? Yeah, definitely. I'd love that metric. And, you know, the schedule's not uh, perfect for Illinois this year. I think when you look at it, the Indiana game early on is a toss-up, but at Wisconsin, they'll be an underdog. Home against Iowa, they'll be a dog. Uh, maybe home against Minnesota, that's a question. When at Nebraska, potentially a dog. Michigan State at home. I mean, drawing Michigan State and Michigan coming out of the uh, the East is very tough. Uh, but I think overall, that yes, the possibilities clearly exist for Illinois to get to that 6-1 level this year, especially the fact that it's a second year for Coach Bielema. Uh, I like the talent they have at the running back core. I like the, the, uh, the addition of Tommy DeVito at the quarterback spot. That offensive line should be one of the more underrated offensive lines out there. I put them in my top units in the front of the magazine. So, yes, I, I think the potential exists. And I'll say this, all the second-year coaches I talk to, Almost say the same thing. Phil, we're in so much better shape than last year. I know the players inside and out. The players know the schemes. I now have had a full recruiting class, so that's what all second-year head coaches say. Yeah, of course, there's one thing about the second-year coaches. He's got a first-year offensive coordinator, which means there are, they are learning the offense, which they were introduced to in the spring. Uh, I just wonder how that's going to work out because Lenny came in here last year with San Antonio and, and uh, really burned Illinois. Yeah, that was an impressive UTSA team overall. And uh, they showed last year with UTSA that they could get it done both running and passing. They had a tremendous running back in Sincere McCormick, but they also had a quarterback. They really developed as the season went on. I think coming into the season, you thought, you know, can this guy throw the football? But uh, I thought Lundy developed him well and turned him into a solid passer. And uh, UTSA was a dangerous team last year. Phil Steele is here with us on Sports Talk. We're going to take a quick break and do some more.
We are continuing here on Sports Talk. Pleased to be joined by Phil Steele. Phil, you say you've talked about 120 of the head coaches in at the FBS level. Coaches are notoriously at football, notoriously paranoid or guarded, however you want to phrase that. Uh, how do you get them to open up? I know it's off the record uh, or kind of a background type of conversation, but still, uh, how, how have you gotten that many guys to talk with you? Yeah, well, the, first of all is, of course, the trust factor, and they, they know that they can say anything to me, and it's completely off the record. I'm not looking for clicks on the Internet. I'm not posting things. Oh, look, listen to this. This coach said this. Uh, I just basically send them over my two full sheets that I have with every player on the team, and we go over every player. And it, your calls usually take close to, I would say, on the average, an hour. There's coaches that take an hour and a half. There's coaches that take 35, 40 minutes. But we go over every player in the team, every position. I don't ask them off-the-field questions at all. I'm just interested in this year's team and how, how they're faring on the field. And then uh, what I do for them is I, I send them over their uh, opponent sheets without coaches' comments on them. But my original opponent sheets where I've gathered all the information it helps them get get prepared for the season. So I think it's a it's a two-way street. But bottom line is everything's off the record, and I'm just learn, trying to learn about their team. Any themes that have emerged, uh, either in the Big Ten or across the country, you already uh, noted that everybody is not necessarily saying, boy, we have a lot of depth and experience after we've gotten out of the COVID stuff. Anything else that has, has emerged? Yeah, I think one theme that came out, uh, and it was something that – I picked up on early, and then as I learned about it, I started asking the coaches and developing more. And by the time I got to Coach 120, uh, I think I had a pretty down. And that's how the FCS transfers do in the FBS level. And I know coming into last year, there were so many FCS transfers coming up. I wondered how would they acclimate? You know, could they really handle the big-time game? And the bottom line is, and from talking to the coaches, this is what I got, uh, football is a game of reps, especially on the offensive line. So you take an FCS offensive lineman that started for three years, they step right in and start on the FBS level because they've had so many more game reps than has, let's say, a backup or an FBS transfer that transferred because he wasn't getting enough playing time. And I think the way the FCS transfers came in and started last year, and I expect them to do well this year, uh, is part of that uh, process. And, and what I gathered from the coaches, it's because of the reps. Uh, Phil, let's talk a little bit about some of the other members of the Big Ten. I said Purdue had a good year last year with nine wins. Iowa, of course, another good year. Minnesota. Uh, do you? Which of those teams do you see rising in the Western Division? Which is the team to beat in the Western Division? Yeah, that's that's a heck of a question. What's the team to beat? Because you know Wisconsin. You know, you look at them overall. They only have three starters back on defense. They have some question marks coming in. Iowa draws Ohio State and Michigan out of the mm. East during play this year. Uh, they've got 14 returning starters. I think they not drawn Ohio State and Michigan. I might have picked them higher. Minnesota is a, a threat. I know they lost a lot on the offensive line, but going over the team with Coach Fleck, I like the replacements they have. They bring in a couple of veteran guys in uh, Falaga uh, coming in from Michigan, and then also Quinn Carroll from Notre Dame. Uh, and, of course, last year, remember, they lost all their running backs week by week. Nebraska, the uh, patron saint of the close wins, close losses, at seven net close losses last year. Purdue might have the best quarterback in the Big Ten and Aiden O'Connell. And we talk schedules with Iowa. They've got the easiest schedule, I think, out of the bunch this year, out of the West. Northwestern, how do you ever keep Pat Fitzgerald down? I mean, he finishes last, and the next year he finishes first. Last, first, 
And last year, you know, I talked about how the big boys were among the very few inexperienced teams. Northwestern only had eight returning starters last year, four on offense, four on defense. So they were in that category. That's why they struggled so much. I think they'll be vastly improved. And then Illinois, as we touched on, a 5-7 team last year with the close losses, improved in year two. I think it's tough to predict the West this year. And, uh, frankly, I could, if you ask me right now, make a case for any of those teams to win it, I could do it. And any of the teams not to win it, i tell you why as well. It's going to be a very competitive division. Do you ever find teams that succeed and you throw your hands up and go, I don't know how this happened. There was some magic dust that was thrown on it, some some secret sauce that I can't figure out how this happened. Yeah, definitely. There are always teams like that. And, you know, one team that does it to me on a yearly basis, it's because of the head coach, is Wake Forest. Uh, I got to tell you, I've been talking to Coach Clawson now 14 straight years, uh, you know, back going dating back to the days when he was Bowling Green. And every year he gets on the phone with me and goes, oh, you know, last year, Phil, you picked this low. We finished here. And uh, he razzes me every year because we always finishes higher than my power ratings say. And so I think it's because of the coach. Last year I thought I had him. I picked him second in the uh, ACC Atlantic behind Clemson. So the only way he beat me is to actually finish first in that division. And guess what? They win the division. They go to the ACC title game. So once again, he beat me in that regard. Uh, he does a great job. But then there are other teams that are unlike Nebraska. I mean, last year Nebraska was plus 56 yards per game in Big Ten play. Could easily have finished with a much better record, but we're 3-9. and nine. Then you look at a team like Michigan State. Michigan State last year was actually minus 63 yards per game in Big Ten play. But somehow they went 11-2. and two. That that makes me scratch my head a little bit. You know, they gave up a lot of yards through the, the pass game, and uh, I, I think Michigan State was on the fortunate side last year. I'd like to know a little bit more about what you think about Purdue. Can they can they continue this? I think they got the best passing coach in the Big Ten, and I think they got the best passer maybe. But uh, overall, can they hold up? Well, they've got the schedule to definitely contend this year. They got fourteen returning starters, seven on each side of the ball. Uh, you look at their uh, crossover games. Their uh, um, Indiana this year and Maryland, so they avoid Ohio State, they avoid Michigan, they avoid Michigan State. You got to like that. They've got Aiden O'Connell back. The offensive line uh, had a lot of guys miss the spring, so the uh, the O line's probably the one concern they have offensively because there's talent at the other position. I guess my biggest question mark with them is last year their defense was so good. Uh, you know, they only gave up uh, 22 points per game. They lose Karloftis up front, which mm-hmm. hurts. Yep. They lose Alexander and Mackey, and they lose Grant. So I wonder if their defense is going to be as dominant without those guys up front. Now, they do have in a, a Murray State transfer, going back to that FCS, and Scotty Humpich, who is very much under the radar he signed. But Coach Brown thinks he's going to have a good year and end up being the starter this year. But the, the schedule's there for him to contend. Uh, we'll have to see how that defense does. All right, Phil Steele, I have gone this long in our conversation without mentioning uh, realignment to you. <laughs> so uh, kudos to me. Doesn't matter to you. Are you just a casual observer of all this uh, this circus, uh, or, or is it relevant to how you're looking at football and, and X's and O's and all that? Yeah, it you know, the realignment doesn't affect my magazine this year whatsoever because it's all down-the-road things, and I was predicting uh, this year's teams and how they're going to fare this year. But 
as a as a somewhat of a traditionalist. I mean, I grew up in Ohio, so as a little boy, the big game for me was always the Rose Bowl, Big Ten versus Pac-12. You'd hate to see some of those conferences go away. It looks like somebody's going to go away, that's for sure. But in the other token, I mean, we saw the Southwest Conference get absorbed by the Big 12. We saw Nebraska transfer to the Big 10. We saw some teams transfer from the Big 12, to, you know, like Texas A&M going to the SEC. I've sort of grown accustomed to change, and there's nothing I can do about it. It's good stuff is going to change, so I guess you just have to sit back and, and see what happens. The coaches you talk to mention much of it? No, and, you know, I'll go back to, like, Big 12 media days. If you talk to Matt Campbell, I think somebody specifically asked him a question about it, and he's like, you know, I've got a team to coach. <laughs> and that's, You're talking about stuff that's two, three years down the road. I'll worry about that when we get two, three years down the road. Well, Phil Steele, uh, hopefully uh, we're talking to you in the next year and the year after that and uh, maybe through the season here as well. I know you are a popular radio guest. Appreciate you making some time with us. Thanks a lot, Phil. Hey, thank you, Scott. Thank you, Lauren. It was a lot of fun talking football with you today. Really enjoyed it. Likewise. Phil Steele's magazine on uh, bookstore shelves now and philsteele.com. We will come back. We'll check in with Brian Barnhart. You're listening to Sports Talk on DWS. Coming up with the final portion of the first hour of Sports Talk, Matt Stevens from Illini Guys is in in the next hour when we shift from previewing the football season to come to something very feel-good for all of us tonight. Brian Barnhart getting ready for the Challenger League event tonight. Brian, good to be doing this once again for you, I'm sure. Yeah, it's fun to be on this end of the phone. <laughs> yes. Now you know what it feels like. <laughs> yeah, role reversal, that's right. Yeah. yeah. No, but Challenger well, yeah, League, we'll you've been involved with this for a while now. Yes. Uh, well, the Challenger League's been around for about tw- well, 25 years. It's the 25th year. Uh, our friend uh, Dave Shaw got me involved in that as a coach about 20 years ago. So I've been doing that ever since. And tonight we at, uh, at Eichelberger Field, U of I softball field, we have our uh, annual Challenger League uh, through the Kiwanis folks all-star game. And so we get all the teams out there and we pair them up with U of I athletes and other folks from the University of Illinois. And uh, we play a game at six and one a little after seven, a couple of innings each. And uh, these are all our kids in the in the Tom Jones Challenger League and a, a big thrill for them. And uh, it's an even bigger thrill for the parents and families and just a lot of smiles to go around. Yeah, and the the sometimes some of the athletes from U of I are out there too to partner up with them or the coaches. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. We usually uh, we even had uh, Chancellor Wise a few years ago was out there on the field with them. So usually there's some administrators of uh, of some kind or uh, other folks that want to just kind of see what it's about. So Mike Namoff will be our pitcher tonight, uh, and he usually does that pitches both games and. Um, it's just a it's a fun evening. If you want to come out and just watch for a while, it's free uh, at Eichelberger Field. Uh, they do have a concession stand normally open uh, if you want to grab a quick hot dog or, or popcorn or something and uh, just enjoy. Uh, just You really enjoy seeing the kids play. I know I've enjoyed it for 20 years, and it's fun to watch the, the kids grow up and, and those with uh, you know that really don't get a chance, haven't had a chance to play baseball before. And that was uh, what our friend Tom Jones' original goal was. Tom was in a wheelchair from the time he was a little boy and uh, wanted to provide an opportunity through Kiwanis for uh, young people uh, in his situation to play baseball. And that's what we do. 
Well, I think it's great, uh, your involvement with it. I assume you're going to lend your voice to it a little bit. I am. I'll be doing the public address announcing, so that'll be fun and, you know, get to all the players introduced and their lineups and and just have some fun with it. Very good. All right, Brian, we'll enjoy it. Eichelberger Field, free, and, uh, of course, a, a great cause. I know it's uh, been near and dear to your heart now over, over many years. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it really has been, and I appreciate the – Challenger League folks, and for Dave Shaw for getting me involved mm-hmm. early on, and uh, very rewarding. Yep. All right, we'll have fun out there, all right? We'll talk to you soon. Okay. We'll start at 6. Okay, right. that's Brian okay. Barnhart, the Challenger League at Eichelberger Fields. All right, well, we had a good conversation, Lauren, with Phil Steele, and we touched on Illinois and UCLA are the first matchup of the the Vegas event in November and the tough gauntlet that Illinois will be going through basketball-wise, not to mention football at that point. And I'm going to say the football is going to be just the same and and, uh, really a tough schedule with uh, Michigan and Michigan State on there, which uh, I'm reminded by him that uh, Purdue's got a real break not playing Michigan, Michigan State, or Ohio State this year. It's not fair. Those divisions should be – determined the champion of the division should be just the games played against each other. I don't know. You know, it's not fair for Iowa to play the teams they're playing and Purdue to play the teams they're playing. You know, I've come around on it. I agree. Good. I, at first I didn't. But I it, talked it, you into it. It makes sense. you got you got to uh, win your division based on common opponents. I think so. Yeah. Because the other things, it's so uncommon. <laughs> Well, is there anything that's common in college football right no, now? No, I don't think so. But, but, but uh, you know, uh, Illinois has had some opportunity. Illinois has been playing Rutgers. They played Rutgers three or four times lately, which is a great benefit. Uh, you know, Usually. It's a break, but they're not, not getting them this year. But you don't get Ohio State or Penn State this year. But either. I'm going to tell you the key game for Illinois this season, second game of the year at Indiana. That's a big one. I think you like that it's early instead of late. News Talk 1400, 93.9 FM, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana, news updates, and then Matt Stevenson for hour number two.